It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode discusses the murder of children. So we have a couple of quick updates to get through in this episode. We have received a statement from the FBI, and even more significantly, perhaps, we've received a statement from Richard Allen's defense attorneys, Richard Allen being the man accused of murdering Liberty German and Abigail Williams in the Delphi case that we've been covering. So we will read both of these to you on the air tonight and discuss them. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. 
Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're The Murder Sheet, and this is... The Delphi Murders, a statement from the defense. So let's start out by talking with what chronologically came first, which would be the statement from the FBI. In our last episode, we mentioned that we had gotten uh, a couple of sources who confirmed to us that the reason why Richard Allen was not looked at more seriously earlier was, in fact, because of a clerical error and that this error was specifically done by a civilian employee of the FBI. So we have heard back from the FBI, with, and they responded with a statement to us, and they wrote, uh, and this is to be attributed to FBI Indianapolis. As stated in the past, this is a complex multi-agency investigation. The implication that an alleged clerical error by an FBI employee caused years of delay in identifying this defendant is misleading. Our review of the matter shows FBI employees correctly followed established procedures. First of all, we definitely very much appreciate the FBI providing a statement to us. It's very important to us that the information we share with you is accurate. And so actually the very first thing after we received that statement was we went back to our sources. Yes. As we said, we've heard from multiple sources that we find credible that uh, this was the case. And basically they stuck with that story. So these are sources who have given us uh, reliable and truthful information in the past. So where we are now is we've reached out to the FBI with a couple of follow-up questions to see if we can figure out, you know, is it possible that we got it wrong? Is it possible that there's some, you know, uh, way we could figure out what the truth is? The, the statement they gave us seems to be very carefully worded. Yes. So, but, uh, but again, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. So we're hoping to kind of clear this up and kind of get get more at, you know, and, and uh, certainly we're in a case this complicated. We are certainly prepared for shades of gray that perhaps one person is not entirely to blame. Perhaps this is a multi pronged issue that we're talking about. So uh, we're not trying to strip this of nuance or just say, oh, this this one agency is a problem and uh, that's the whole thing. I mean, we're not trying to vilify any one person or agency. We just 
do think it is important that there is some sort of public understanding of what happened here. So, you know, we stand by our reporting. But then again, if we're made aware that uh, we made an error in our reporting or that there's further nuance that we should have included, uh, then we will be updating and letting you know promptly. And uh, we don't we're not going to uh, we're not going to hide mistakes. We're going to let you know if we feel we we stepped out of line. Right. We want to be transparent. We want to be accountable. We want you to hold us accountable. And we will say that, you know, we've talked a little bit about our sources here. That's all we'll be saying about them because it's uh, we have numerous sourcing agreements. And basically that boils down to keeping people confidential. So uh, we trust our sources and they trust us because we don't talk about them. <laughs> Hopefully the FBI will get back to us and provide more nuance. And if they do, we will quickly share that with you as we have quickly shared this. Again, it's not about criticizing one person or one agency. This is a case where a lot of people were involved. A lot of different agencies were involved. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's ultimately on everyone who's participating. Um, and it's not... I don't really feel like, you know, it's not about starting a blame game. It's just about explaining to the public, you know, what might have gone wrong. What, how can we learn from this? You know, what kind of things could happen in the future to maybe uh, smooth things over or, or allow things to function a little bit better? So it, it's with that intention that we do this reporting. It's not with the intention of getting anybody in trouble or casting blame in one direction versus another. So the other uh, statement that came out today was uh, the attorneys for Richard Allen, Brad Rosie, and Andrew Baldwin issued a press release. And this is the most we've heard from them, really. They, they had some comments, obviously, at the hearing last week, both during the hearing itself and afterwards. But I think this is the most detailed statement we've gotten from them. And there's a lot of interesting things in here worth chewing over. Yes. So I think we'll just go through and read this and maybe have a few reactions or um, kind of discuss as we go along. But whenever we're reading from the official statement, you will hear this sound. All right. So let's begin. As Richard Rick Allen's attorneys, we have received multiple requests from local and national media for interviews and comment since the unsealing of the probable cause affidavit. It would be virtually impossible to comply with these requests and continue to focus on the merits of Rick's defense. Therefore, we offer up these thoughts. We do not want to try this case in the media, and we intend to adhere to the Indiana rules of professional conduct that provide guidance on pretrial publicity. However, the police and prosecutor's office have conducted many press conferences over the five-plus years of this investigation and following our client's arrest. On the other hand, Rick's ability to assert his innocence has been reduced to only one short post-hearing press conference. <coughs> Accordingly, we feel it appropriate, necessary, and within the bounds of our rules of professional conduct to make a few comments concerning the probable cause affidavit and Rick's innocence. Well, it's 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 definitely interesting. Um, they're kind of commenting on like maybe a bit of a lopsided uh, media reach here between them and the prosecution side. And also one note, the background of all this, there is, of course, the looming gag order, which is there's going to be a hearing for that on January 13th. We just had announced along with the motion uh, for a change of venue. So that's going to be January 13th. They're going to be looking at both of these issues. But basically, the prosecutor has 
you know, filed a motion to gag the parties in this, which means the defense attorneys as well as the prosecutor's office. But we can imagine that that's more directed at the defense attorneys. Exactly. And so there could potentially be a, a time clock on how long the defense has in order to make public statements about the case. And so you can understand why they would want to take advantage of this time when they're not under any kind of gag order to get their point of view out. That seems reasonable and natural. Yes. Now they're going to get into a few more facts that they want to put out out there on the case. Rick is a 50-year-old man who has never been arrested nor accused of any crime in his entire life. He is innocent and completely confused as to why he has been charged with these crimes. Yes, from what we heard and from what we've been able to discover, we have not really found any sort of criminal past for Rick Allen uh, in our research. And nor have we talked to anyone who felt that there was some, you know, uncharged illicit activity going on with him. So that is a bit unlike, you know, other people who've come up in this case where there might be some, you know, criminal activity or underlying situation going on. The stereotype, and people even said this to us, the the stereotype is a 50-year-old man who's led a law-abiding life does not suddenly get up one morning and have a sudden desire to kill a couple of girls. That's a stereotype, and it sounds pretty compelling when you first hear it, but I think both of us could probably cite some cases where a 50-year-old man does just that. Yeah, and it's like, without having spoken to, I feel, enough people who knew him intimately throughout his, like, middle age, I don't feel we have a great sense of who he is as a person to his friends. We've not been able – we've got a lot of people who went to high school with him. I don't feel we've gotten a lot of people who are, like, close with him in recent years. So he's still a bit of a mystery to us and to a lot of people covering this case. And it says he's confused about why the charges have been filed against him. What do you make of that? They're portraying their client in what they feel is the best possible light. So the best possible light in their view is like this innocent man who's not only scared and upset, but he's just, why would they think it's me? So, I mean, it's just, it's part of the narrative that they're trying to set. I'm not commenting on whether or not the narrative is inaccurate or accurate. I'm just, that's, it's a... They're trying to kind of, you know, what the media cares about oftentimes boils down to characters and they want their they want their client to they want his character to be that of a innocent man, baffled, desperate to return to home to his family and his job and his, you know, nice life, not, you know, a monster. So they're trying to humanize him. They're trying to, you know, uh, say that he's a victim in all this, too, essentially. So that's that's how I read that. The police did not contact Rick after Libby German and Abby Williams went missing. Rather, Rick contacted the police and voluntarily discussed being on the trail that day. Like many people in Delphi, Rick wanted to help any way he could. Rick contacted the police to let them know that he had walked on the trail that day, as he often did. Without Rick coming forward, the police probably would not have had any way of knowing that he was on the trail that day. Now this is interesting. Well, this actually goes toward the story we heard, which was that Rick Allen came forward to police. I, I know there's been some debate on that, but I think we had him coming forward and other members of the Indianapolis media market had him coming forward. 
Yes. So the defense is saying that's correct. That that's the. And they actually go into a little bit more t- yeah. detail about that later. Uh, the classic advice that defense lawyers always give their clients is don't talk to police. And unfortunately, that seems to be the subtext of this particular paragraph because they're saying if Rick had not come forward and talked to police, they'd have no idea he was there and he probably wouldn't have ended up being charged. Yeah. And uh, and that why would a why would a guilty party put himself in front of police at all if he didn't have to? And I think to me, him coming forward is a neutral you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as an innocent man who wants to do his best to help this horrible situation and wants to give information. And it's just, you know, without guile and kind of, you know, hey, uh, let me help you out. And like, I, I just want to be a good guy. You can also look at it as, you know, somebody who either, you know, is, is, is guilty and wants to know what police know, realizes that they've been seen and wants to be able to explain their appearance there is worried that they may have left evidence pointing to them, so they want to be able to try to start explaining that away or, you know, get some sort of um, satisfaction from toying with law enforcement. So to me, it's a neutral. I'm not saying it's one or, you know, it's, I mean, it just kind of like doesn't really point either way to me. What's your assessment of it? Yeah, I'm I'm 100% in agreement. It could mean a lot of different things. It doesn't necessarily argue innocence. It doesn't argue guilt. No, I I I'd completely agree. It just it's you could see it going either way. Rick volunteered to meet with a conservation officer outside of the local grocery store to offer up details of his trip to the trail on the day in question. Rick tried to assist with the investigation and told the police that he did recall seeing three younger girls on the trail that day. His contact with the girls was brief and of little significance. Rick does not recall if this interaction with the conservation officer was tape recorded, but believes that the conservation officer scribbled notes on a notepad as Rick spoke to him. So first of all, I want to say that that first sentence is pretty unclear because you could interpret it as, oh, Rick, Rick Allen ran into somebody at the grocery store and then offered to meet with him. Or it could be interpreted as Rick offered to meet with a conservation officer in the parking lot of a grocery store. Yeah, what grocery store is this? It seems like it's giving the sense that it's a very casual, informal interaction of like, hey, man, let's just, hey, I wanted to tell you something. Let's talk about it. It's it's giving a very, like, just a casual, small-town interaction. I mean, I don't know. It's just kind of giving that informality. I wonder if that's a purposeful effect that they're going for. Kind of like, you know... It wasn't even official. It was just a grocery store chat. And it's also saying, I mean, you know how what happens when we try to record things in public, right? Yeah. It's messy. There's a lot of wind interference. So I think they're kind of also putting, they're kind of setting the scene to give this informality kind of a, it's a bit of a pointedness to that in my interpretation. I think these are very smart. I think these are very smart lawyers. I think they're trying to, you know, they're not including details that are extraneous. It's supposed to paint a picture. Yes. After Rick shared his information with law enforcement officials, he went back to his job at the local CVS and didn't hear from the police for more than five years. This supports what uh, we've reported and what other people reported, which was basically that the information 
Alan gave about his presence on the bridge that day was misfiled or lost. Yes. We've been often asked, well, don't you think maybe police were playing the long game? They were just kind of doing all this stuff in the background and they're going to circle around back to this guy eventually. They were not. That's this pretty much indicates that, that they were not, it was not like, go, oh, Hey Rick, why don't you come and hang out and get a cup of coffee with us? Talk to us about, it. what do you remember? This is, he just, he, he, he just went back to his job. I mean, that's it. Uh, and also I'll note the one of, we talk about sometimes a guilty person tries to insinuate themselves into an investigation. Typically if a guilty person does that, they make repeated attempts and in this case, for whatever it's worth, and it may not be worth much, it sounds like he just went went forward with his information once, and then he did not try to insinuate himself into the investigation. We did hear the report from the Patties, from, from Becky and Mike, that he did provide them with services at CVS, developing photos for Libby's memorial service, and so... There are, there are more informal ways to insinuate yourself into something than just going with law enforcement. So I'll just I'll add that if we believe that he's guilty, we're we're keeping the we're keeping things. You know, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. I'm just trying to go with all the different angles here. Um, and I could see someone if you're insinuating yourself for for the personal satisfaction. I think you're going to keep doing it if you're really more of trying to think like, did anyone see me? You know, I think that might be one and done. I could see that, but I could also see it just being somebody who's like, well, I gave them the information they wanted. Uh, that's all they need for me. So I can just go about my business now. The next time Rick heard from the police was in October, 2022. This was approximately two weeks before a contested sheriff's election. And within days of a federal lawsuit filed against Carroll County Sheriff's office by its former second in command, Michael Thomas. In the lawsuit, Thomas claims that he, Thomas, had made suggestions and offered assistance in the investigation of a high-profile child homicide investigation, but those suggestions and offers were rejected by the sheriff. Thomas further claimed that the sheriff and others in the department feared the disagreements with Thomas would become publicized as a result of the political campaign for sheriff. Thomas claims in the suit that he was ultimately demoted and replaced by Tony Liggett, who later that year won the 2022 election for sheriff. Furthermore, Thomas claims he was also removed from high-profile cases. Okay, yeah. So this is where things get a bit crazy. <sighs> Off the rails. Uh, first of all, obviously one of the responsibilities a defense attorney has is to advocate zealously for their client using whatever they can. Yeah. Uh, we're talking specifically about the Mike Thomas Angle. lawsuit here. Uh, we covered this lawsuit in depth in an earlier episode. We'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, just as a short little primer, it was basically a workplace. Well, let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, yeah. Mike Thomas uh, was... A, the chief deputy in the Carroll County Sheriff's Department, he decided to run to become sheriff. He ran in the Republican primary. We reached out to him and all the candidates for sheriff, including Tony Liggett, uh, basically asking, you know, 
can you can you comment on our show? Can you speak about how the investigation into the Delphi murders is going? That being the highest profile crime in the county. Uh, you know, what do you have to say about, you know, what what are you sort of bringing to the table here? Mike Thomas was the only person that responded. We did a pretty in-depth interview with him, which you can listen to. It's pretty non-controversial. I mean, in my in my remembrance, it's just kind of this, you know, talk about, well, you know, I think we could do some different things. He's not very specific about what those things are, but it, it was a good talk. It, he, you know, friendly talk. So he ran in the primary, and as we say, he lost. Shortly after he lost, a couple of people from out of state filed a lawsuit alleging that uh, Tony Liggett had violated the Federal Hatch Act in the course of the primary campaign. That suit was thrown out, and the people who filed it were ordered to pay court costs. Uh, Not long after that, shortly before the actual election, Mike Thomas himself filed a lawsuit against the sheriff's department saying basically he was alleging workplace harassment, that he was treated poorly by the sheriff's department and deputies after he decided to run in the primary and after he lost. And then almost as a side note, he mentions, oh, incidentally, During this high-profile double murder case, uh, I made some suggestions which were not listened to or taken seriously. Uh, The first thing I'd want to say is, uh, and we said this in our episode, is that if a person faces harassment or discrimination at the workplace, that's terrible. It should be taken seriously. And so we're all for Mr. Thomas having his claims looked at by judicial officers. It is a little bit confusing to us as to why he chose to inject in his suit uh, talk about the Delphine murders. It's baffling. We've asked follow-up questions to try to get answers on that decision, which frankly stunk of a bid for media attention. It seemed a bit cynical. It seemed incredibly cynical to me. <laughs> and we we, we we asked for clarification on that matter because perhaps there's something that we we're not all knowing. You know, I, I want, you know, if you can give us a reason why this is relevant here, because what what doesn't add up for me is the timeline of being from what we've heard behind the scenes, barely involved with the case in 2017 and then turning around and saying that that leads to harassment when you decide to run for sheriff in 2022. It appears, uh, it appears as if he was using uh, a mention of the girls, he say to get media attention and to try to improve his chances of winning his suit. And that is cynical. And it was frankly somewhat uh, upsetting. Uh, and also, I'll, I'll say, just be, just because your boss doesn't take some advice you might give him about how to do something doesn't necessarily mean that he's corrupt or he's doing the wrong thing. You might thing. just think your ideas are bad. And one thing we asked is that, what were those ideas that were shot down and rejected? What specifically were those ideas? Because let let the public judge for for you know for what it's worth, for what your suggestion was. Yes, and some people came forward to us and said, well, we think this is the person that maybe Mike Thomas wanted them to talk to. We haven't been able to verify any of that. No. 
We haven't been able to verify, oh, if they did it Mike Thomas's way, would it have been solved? And I will also note that when he ran in the primary, none of the people who worked with him endorsed him. They endorsed another candidate. Yeah, which he cited in his lawsuit as, you know, reason for everyone conspiring against you. And if everyone's doing it and is bullying you, that's not acceptable. That's a hostile work environment. But if everyone's doing it because they don't think you're going to do a good job, then that's just that's tough. So now we have he he injected Delphi into his suit for what appears to us, in our opinion, to be cynical reasons. And by doing that, he's basically put a, a weapon in the hands of the defense attorneys because now the defense attorneys are going to cry, the defense attorneys are going to try to create the impression that the investigation was flawed. And that people were not, people were consciously not doing everything they could to further the case. There was some sort of corruption. More so than that, even more so than that, because that could happen with any other suspect that's looked into that, oh, you know, they dropped this in favor of that. What this does is by having, uh, you know, the bringing up the sheriff's election is it puts an inciting incident on the table arguing, well, they just arrested Rick Allen so that they could uh, have this in time for the election, essentially. Yeah, in addition to the Mike Thomas thing, they're saying, well, maybe the only reason they they rushed this arrest through was because of an election. So uh, I understand why the defense attorneys are doing this. I wish they weren't doing it. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Roe Body Program. Here's how it works. Roe gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. EMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roco slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roco slash msheet. That's roco slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rick was ultimately arrested on or about October 28th, 2022. In the five-plus years since, Rick volunteered to provide information to the police. Rick did not get rid of his vehicle or his guns and did not throw out his clothing. He did not alter his appearance. He did not relocate himself to another community. He did what any innocent man would do and continued with his normal routine. Uh, a lot of this seems to be the defense asking, like, would a guilty person do this? Certainly some of this stuff doesn't seem strategic in hindsight if you're talking about a guilty person. So I'm not going to say that this this was prudent for a guilty person to do, but I just feel like, I don't know, if you're kind of getting away with it, maybe you don't do any of that because it's an inconvenience. If he still has the same clothes he was wearing on that day, obviously it would be interested to have them tested. Yes, certainly. It's very difficult, even over five plus years, to wash out all traces of blood. Yes. I'd be interested about, you know, if there's anything in the cars either. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's just like this is hard to say because you could kind of see it going either way. I guess this seems a little bit more significant to me than the coming forward to police because that really could go either way. I can see what they're saying here. Why wouldn't you at least like get rid of your clothing? Yes, if I committed murder and had clothes with blood on them, I would not hang onto those clothes. I would not even try to launder those clothes. I would just get rid of them. But again, if you're ta- I mean, if you're talking about something as irrational as the brutal murder of two girls, I'm not I'm not trying to in, in, in introduce any sort of insanity talk into this, but you know, I mean, m- maybe maybe normal people don't really understand how your mind works at that point. The probable cause affidavit seems to suggest that a single magic bullet is proof of Rick's guilt. It is a bit premature to engage in any detailed discussions regarding the veracity of this evidence until more discovery is received, but it is safe to say that the discipline of tool mark identification, parentheses ballistics, is anything but a science. The entire discipline has been under attack in courtrooms across the country as being unreliable and lacking any scientific validity. We anticipate a vigorous legal and factual challenge to any claims by the prosecution as to the reliability of its conclusions concerning a single magic bullet. So obviously the use of the term magic bullet is a way to ridicule the bullet and to conjure up images of talk from the JFK assassination, where we've all heard talk about how, oh, in order to believe Oswald did all the shooting by himself— You have to believe that the bullet did these really seemingly improbable things. It would have had to be a magic bullet. So what's ironic to me is, yes, it does seem uh, implausible that the bullet in the JFK case did all those things. But I'm sure some of you would disagree with me. I believe Oswald acted alone. So just calling something a magic bullet doesn't necessarily uh, mean much to me. They didn't know that they were... uh sending this press release to somebody who's uh, so interested in the JFK assassination. 
uh, obviously, we all anticipated that they would challenge the identification because the probable cause affidavit itself highlighted the fact that tying this particular bullet to Alan's gun was subjective. Yeah, I mean, we that's why we kind of, you know, when we were doing our initial analysis, we don't know much about ballistics. We do not know much about uh, guns. So we stated there pretty emphatically that, you know, is this subjective in like a reasonable way, in a scientific way, or is it subjective in like kind of like it doesn't, you know, there's no rules way. And we still really don't know that. We've heard from a lot of experts who are in our inbox right now, and we're trying to talk to a bunch of people about this, get different perspectives, get people who are firearms experts, get people who are, you know, different types of attorneys who might have dealt with this evidence before. It seems to be something that is debated. I would not say that we've received anything. It's not like unilaterally people saying this is terrible evidence, and it's not unilaterally people saying it's amazing evidence. It's like there's a debate. There's a spectrum of how people seem to feel about it. So we're going to be speaking to some of those experts and trying to get you information about how this evidence is perceived. That's going to be very important. Tying That's something that ties Rick Allen to the scene, to the general scene, you know, and, and of course they could say that also, you know, it, if the bullet's not used to kill anybody, then doesn't necessarily place him there at the time of the murders, but that's a whole other thing. But for now that, you know, we're trying to figure out more about the ballistics. too. So yeah, obviously expect for there to be a great deal of talk during the trial and the pretrial hearings about whether or not this identification is actually valid. On Rick's behalf, we argued to have the PCA unsealed. Rick has nothing to hide. As importantly, we were hoping that we would receive tips that would assist us in proving up his innocence. Not surprisingly, we have been inundated with tips from a variety of sources, all of which will be vetted by our team. Although it is the burden of the prosecutor to prove Rick's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt... The defense team looks forward to conducting its own investigation concerning Rick's innocence. We appreciate those that have reached out to support his cause. Uh, so, I, you know, this is kind of a poking the prosecution a little bit to say, you know, they're the ones who didn't want to tell you about this. We have nothing to hide. So it's, it's more narrative. It, it is, but it does... You know, raise the question again, why did the prosecution make this choice? I don't trying know. to hide it. Yeah. Generally speaking, when someone is on the side of trying to hide information and someone else is on the side of let's get the information out, most people tend to sympathize with the person who's trying to get information out. The prosecutor mentioned at the last hearing his belief that others may have been involved in the killing. Yet there was no mention in the PCA about a second suspect involved in the killing. The defense is confused by such discrepancies in the investigation and will be in a better position to respond as more discovery is received. And again, it's poking the prosecution, saying basically the prosecution made some promises they didn't keep. They told you all that there was stuff in this probable cause affidavit about other perpetrators. There's not, is there? I'm not at all surprised. That there was nothing about other perpetrators in there. I'm not surprised. Because what the prosecution is going to be trying to do now is get Rick Allen. Right? I mean, that's what they're that's what this thing is about. They're not, you know, it's gonna be here's all the evidence about him. And if they feel other people are involved and they're able to prove that, that'll be a separate thing. You know, I'm not I'm not 
obviously we want answers. We want to know what the heck's going on. The public wants answers. I'm not, I'm just saying from the perspective of the prosecution, not that surprised. I think a lot of people are really looking over the PCA to be like, Oh, is there any indication that there's a second suspect on the scene? People have speculated with that with us. And I think we understand where that's coming from, but we tend to think that, um, there's also more than one way for people to be involved in this homicide since it's a felony murder case. If you're participating in some manner in setting up the circumstances where a felony occurred and these girls were murdered, then you could be sucked into it too. It's not, it's not necessarily about being physically at the scene at this point, given the nature of the charges. Rick Allen owned a Ford Focus in February of 2017. His Ford Focus is not in any way similar to the distinctive look of the PT Cruiser or smart car that was described by the witnesses. It seems that the CCSD is trying to bend facts to fit their narrative. And of course, when we read the probable cause affidavit, we also, as other people did, note that those cars seem very different. Now, we have gotten some uh, speculation from folks in our inboxes who are pointing out that maybe different versions of the cars could look similar if you're going or, you know, if the paint is a certain way. And we, we hear you. We are hoping to look more into some of those possibilities. But at the same time, on its face, the way the PCA was put together raises questions, I would say. I would say that, too. You know. They're not saying, oh, but look, when you look at this type of Ford Focus and this, then you can kind of see them. Like they're, you know, and so that when we're just looking at the PCA, that's that's something to keep in mind. At this point in time, we have received very limited information about this case and look forward to having something more to view than that which was offered up in the sparse PCA. Just kind of closing with the this was weak. They said that before it came out. They're saying it here. Moving forward, it is our intent to scrutinize the discovery as it is received and give the necessary attention to the volumes of tips that we are receiving. To the extent we continue to discover information that points to Rick's innocence, we will offer up this information to the public, so long as we are not prohibited from doing so as a result of the recent request by the prosecutor for a gag order, or by the Indiana Rules of Professional Conduct. Brad Rosie, Andrew J. Baldwin, attorneys for Rick Allen. So here we kind of have the conclusion. They're, they're saying we're very much going to adhere to a gag rule if it comes to that. We're very much going to adhere to the professional rules that we're bound by. So uh, interesting. Doesn't seem like they're contesting the gag order. Do you find that interesting? What gives you that impression? Well, they just say, like, if we get gagged then you know we're not gonna we're not gonna do that (laughs) i think they're gonna contest the gag order i would think they'd have to yes yeah it benefits them to it benefits them to put this out there i just interpret that as them saying if there is a gag order issued we will respect it so it's saying like to judge gull basically we're not you know like we're not gonna break the rules yes we're getting a glimpse this is just the beginning we're we're happy you know that they that they sent out the statement and that we were able, you know, they were able to send it to us and I'll just, it just kind of is the beginning. As we've said many times, we're trying to keep an open mind in, in this, given that a trial is coming. There are a couple of details and areas where they're kind of filling it in or confirming things or kind of 
pushing the narrative. There's nothing hugely explosive in here is my assessment, but it's just kind of like putting it out there in more of a, you know, well, think about it from our perspective. Think about it from this perspective, trying to kind of put Rick Allen, you know, when you kind of go on people who are more on the prosecution side, you're hearing a lot about, you know, isn't this, you know, look at Rick Allen. He's putting himself there at the scene. Like, look at that. And then, you know, they're saying he's a helpful citizen. That's why he's doing that. So it's just kind of the push-pull of defense versus prosecution on this. And we look forward to more, uh, getting more information about this. As we said, the the uh, hearing to talk about the gag order, to talk about change of venue, is going to be January 13th. So there's going to be something closer at hand than the bond hearing that's going to be February 17th. So... We'll be monitoring that and looking at other motions that are filed. And if there's something newsworthy that happens, we will hop on the horn to discuss it. We're just giving you our analysis and our opinions. We hope we try to really flag when we're sharing our opinions versus when we're sharing something that is, you know, a definite fact. And certainly reasonable people can disagree. But we, um, you know, we feel that sometimes it it makes sense that you should know how we feel about things uh, as long as we're. Marking that as our opinions and not just uh, presenting it as fact. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk with you again soon. Okay, so right after we finished recording, we actually saw that Tobe Lesenby, the current sheriff of Carroll County, actually provided a response to Fox 59, who, of course, did a story on the statement from the defense. So... Here's what Lesenby told Fox 59. I feel a court of law is the proper and impartial setting for this matter to be vetted and not within the dominion of speculation or assumption of a public or social media arena. Patience and time must be afforded to the system, granting all aspects of the case to be brought to light. We wanted to include that because it's obviously a pushback to what the defense is putting out there. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murder sheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. 
book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.